This podcast is made possible in part by Pfizer. Welcome to the breastcancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, breastcancer.org senior editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, as always. Thanks for listening. Many people struggle with being intimate during and after breast cancer treatment. Surgery can change the way you look and feel about yourself, as well as change the sensations your breasts feel. Hormonal therapy can lower your libido and make sex uncomfortable. You may be afraid that having your breasts or other areas touched will be painful, and you may be fatigued and feeling exhausted. Talking to your partner about all this can feel overwhelming. Our guest today is Dr. Stephanie Ross, a clinical health psychologist and the founder and director of Illness Navigation Resources. She is going to help us break down this complex topic and offer tips on how to start a conversation with your partner about sex. Dr. Ross is also an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. She's especially interested in helping patients and families with a genetic mutation linked to cancer, particularly breast, ovarian, and colon cancer, as well as Lynch syndrome. Dr. Ross, welcome to the podcast. This is such a sensitive topic. Thank you so much for helping us. I'm happy to be here, Jamie. So to start at the very beginning with just talking about sex and intimacy, just just the talking part is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. So if they can't talk about it, then they're never going to be able to ask for what they want and what they need. So how can people get more comfortable just talking about sex? Well, you make a great point. It's very ironic that so many people struggle more talking about sex and intimacy than actually engaging in sexual activity. So the basis for most great or even good sex in general is communication. It's not an easy task for many especially in the context of a current, recent cancer treatment and recovery, the roles in a relationship have often changed. And that makes this conversation even harder. We've sometimes divided roles into patient and caregiver. So there is often a disconnect between what might have been a good sex life has been medicalized in some way. So getting back to just reestablishing being a couple, being partnered, and bonding in ways outside of the bedroom. So I think the most important way in terms of getting back or even getting close to being able to talk to each other about something that might be so private and might have been something you just did and never talked about even in the context of a very long relationship. The most important advice I can give is to recreate the bond and to build the bond between the partnership. And this is done usually through non-sexual activity. It is simply taking the time after a cancer diagnosis where all things besides surviving treatment making sure perhaps if you have children that your kids are okay, that you keep your job, that you don't default on your mortgage, all of the things that come with cancer 
and its aftermath, oftentimes it's the relationship that has completely been on the back burner. And so it's really important to get back to building that bond. And that can be done in many ways. And we have to understand where patients and families are at. Building a bond does not have to be complex. It can be as simple as committing to have 30 minutes together alone, uninterrupted time. And it does not have to be physical. It can be watching a show together, exercising together, taking a drive together, taking a walk together, turning off our phones and our computers, and just reestablishing that connection as partners. I think that's really critical. That makes really good sense. I, I'm curious, though, what happens if the partner is really uncomfortable, too, and say the person who's been diagnosed gathers enough courage, enough education to bring it up, and the partner just says, no, I, I can't talk about that. How do we how do we deal with that? Well, we are fortunate to live in an era where we have so much access to expert advice, and I call this indirect communication. So while we may not be able to talk about this with our partner, we can certainly share resources and we can send a link to a expert who's talking about this subject. And there is so much written about this topic. So it may be sharing a link. It may be sharing a book. It may be sharing a podcast such as this one in an indirect way of just acknowledging that this is an issue. So we don't have to start with sitting down and talking face-to-face -face about sex, especially in the context of a relationship where that was never, ever part of the sexual relationship. Oh, that's that's interesting. That, that's very good. And, and I'm so old, it reminds me of when people would write into advice columnists and then cut the clipping out of the paper and put it on whomever that they wanted to talk to about the subject but couldn't bring it up, put it on their dinner plate or put it on the fridge. So it's kind of the the current version of doing that. And for many couples, it's easier to text or email than it is to talk face-to-face. -face. So even if you want to directly address the topic, sometimes even if you've been in a long-standing relationship, communication that's hard to have in a face-to-face -face context we have these electronic methods to use as tools, not as the sole way of connecting, but right. maybe it's part of the warm-up. Gotcha. This topic is is so huge, and I guess I'm wondering, so say somebody's like, okay, I'm going to do this. Does it make sense for them to kind of think about what's important to them first and, and like focus on one or two things? Because I feel like once the conversation starts, it could be a 10-hour conversation. And obviously, that may not be helpful to everybody because it would be like too much all at once. So it, it, is that something that the person who wants to bring it up should kind of think about too? I think it's a series of conversations and a series of conversations that begins with foundationally reconnecting, talking about other things, and really working up to these issues that may be much harder to talk about. So the expectation that we're going to sit down at this designated hour and we're going to hash out all the details of our sex life is really unreasonable for most people and probably not the most effective. 
most long-term couples have what we call a sexual script. We may be conscious or unconscious of how that works, but sometimes a good example of this is it may start with a subtle touch or a nod, or it may be it's Friday night or Saturday night, whatever the usual night of the week is. There may be a certain time of day, and it may go in a certain order. And when you have a cancer diagnosis or any illness or any life disruption, frankly, it's time to put that sexual script away and create a new one or modify what it already exists. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Again, since the topic is so large, the way I thought we might approach this is I'll bring up some of the issues that have been mentioned the most in our community, and maybe you can offer some tips or some advice on how couples might deal with them, with these issues that, that you've seen in, in your practice. And if I miss any, if I'm missing one that's really obvious based on, on what you've heard, please let me know. But I know one of the big ones is is body image and feeling unattractive, and I don't look the same as I did before. And perhaps the partner was, you know, if somebody's had a mastectomy or a double mastectomy, maybe the partner found the breasts very attractive. And now the breasts are not the same or they're not there anymore, you know, depending on what kind of surgery anybody's had. So what, what are some ways to work through that? How can people work through that? What tips do you have? One tip I have is that we have to remember that we are often operating against a cultural norm that invalidates those realities. They're very real for the patient. Their body is not their own. There's grief involved in losing body parts. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of cancers directly in women directly affect sexual organs. Mm -hmm. So losing breasts. Breasts are a sexual organ. So if, if nipple play was a large part of your sexual script or something that you both enjoyed and it's not there anymore, we have to acknowledge that. And our culture oftentimes does such a disservice because what do we say to our friends and family members who are going through breast cancer that's radically altering their body? They say things like, Oh, I love the shape of your head. Bald is so beautiful. You pull it off so well. Or a woman who's had a double mastectomy and reconstruction, they'll say, oh, your breasts are so perky. I wish mine were like that too. So it's really does a disservice and invalidates what a person may be feeling and also what their partner may be feeling. So this is something that does not necessarily have to be worked out in the context of a couple. So we're talking about how to have these conversations as a couple, but what really might help is to have these conversations individually. So a patient and a partner may have these conversations separately and perhaps with a counselor, with a therapist, in a support group, somewhere safe where they can have their feelings validated in some way. And they can recognize that a lot of this is universal feelings and that they can be comfortable enough having processed it on their own to bring it up to their partner. But, you know, 
when we talk about body image, feeling unattractive, it's really Im important for the patient to work on ways to restore the feeling that the body is not the enemy. If we think about it, our bodies, if we go through a serious illness, are the enemy. And sex in and of itself is one of the greatest joys that our body can produce. So this works against each other. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I never thought about it that way, but that's very true. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of body image, it's the recognition that things are different and then working with what is there and what will help with that. And there is no shame. I've worked with so many patients who are more comfortable wearing lingerie and that they may cover their breasts initially during sex. And that makes them more comfortable and can really take away some of their feelings until they can build back or not build back. And this isn't always a bad thing. You know, when you're in a long-term relationship, some form of spicing it up was often indicated well before breast cancer diagnosis. Other ways that, you know, we can help women to restore their body image is by seeing what the body can still do. So that's why things like exercise, and we have so many wonderful resources for exercising safely, post-mastectomy, post-radiation, with lymphedema, but showing the body's power, that it can still do things, and that can help one to feel better. But I have patients, and I have seen many women who have never had their spouses see them without their wig, without false eyelashes, without their top on. And it's really a personal choice. We should not stand in judgment. They can, these, are, these are some of the most wonderful, meaningful relationships that I've witnessed in my career. So whatever works for women um, in terms of getting that feeling back, but acknowledging that, that it is there. And again, it doesn't have to be this big talk. And the partner oftentimes will default into, I love you anyway, I love your body however it is. And the patient who's not feeling the, that way themselves completely will just turn that off. Mm, okay. So, a partner and a patient are not always in the same place at the same time. And is it kind of up to the partner to modify, adjust, to sort of get to the same place as the person who's been diagnosed? Is that helpful or, or can it go on with they're both in these different places? I think it really depends on the pre-existing relationship. And sure. again, I will go back to rebuilding the bond and mm. really taking this opportunity to sort of reset and reestablish a relationship. I mean, there are many relationships we know that do not survive a serious illness. And so really committing to the relationship beyond the bedroom. Okay. Um, another big one I know, and I, I'm kind of going to put these two together, but maybe they shouldn't be, is, um, is painful sex. A lot of women who are taking uh, hormonal therapy like tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, there's painful sex and then there's also loss of libido. So there's, and I kind of put them together because I know that the hormonal therapy medicines can 
cause both of those things. But there can be also other contributions, like just being exhausted is certainly not going to make you feel very sexy. Um, so I, maybe I shouldn't put them together. But let, so let's talk about painful sex. Like what what can people do? Because it's very hard to, uh, I would think, for somebody who's, you know, just finished treatment and sex is painful and their partner's trying very hard and they feel like they're hurting them. So that this to me seems like very a very sensitive and sort of fraught topic. It is. And here's the place where communication is really key. So that it can be seen as a temporary, perhaps temporary place where a lot of couples run into trouble as they try it once. It didn't work. And we're never doing that again. I don't want to hurt you. I don't ever want to be perceived as hurting you. Or the person who is feeling pain with intercourse, perhaps, they will be avoidant. When something hurts us, the brain automatically shuts down and says, I never want to do that again. Right. So really where we start is with education and learning to speak up with our healthcare team. Many of these symptoms can be treated. And in an ideal world, we hope that our healthcare providers bring all of this to our attention that you may experience besides hair loss, nausea, loss of sensation, these things, but that our teams are also talking to us about things that are important to quality of life, like pain with intercourse. So having the conversation with your healthcare provider, and that could be your oncologist, it could be your gynecologist, it could be in the context even of a support group, or it's really important because there are many things that are now available and tested and safe. And again, this may have to make you change up your sexual script if you need to go slow or you need to stop or you need to use a certain kind of lubricant or you need to build up to intercourse. This may, this may change, but it really starts with being educated. I mean, some of the medications that we actually use, not just the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, but we also talk about things like antidepressants mm-hmm. that are commonly prescribed to help with the anxiety and depression and management of mood that's so critical during after treatment. These have se- sexual side effects in and of themselves, such as they may. Not all of them do, and not everyone experiences them, but simply the knowledge that this can happen and that there are steps that we can take that your healthcare team can take to minimize that. So it's really about everyone being more comfortable with the conversation. In my field is often called a doorknob conversation where you will have a a wonderful session with a patient or if you have a visit with your gynecologist and go through is everything okay and is the checklist of everything and the level of shame and embarrassment that some people have around this issue they wait until they put their hand on the door to open the door and leave and then they'll turn around and they'll say oh one more thing Uh aha 
instead of this being a primary thing. Okay. So we have to have the the courage to bring it up. And as you said, there are strategies, there are lubricants, there are moisturizers, there are different things that people can try that can help. And I'm also wondering, you know, if it if maybe could you not have penetrative sex and would that be okay too? Is that, you know, is that a, a good substitute? I don't know. That's a hallmark of sex therapy. Uh, is really okay. work, you know, culturally penetrative sex is the goal. That is how we have been socialized. And there are so many other ways of both giving and receiving pleasure. There also are things like hand-holding mm-hmm. and rubbing and scalp massage that can be inherently pleasurable and build the bond and work up ultimately to perhaps more of maybe what you used to do or how you used to operate, this is really an opportunity for couples to pause and explore. And it shouldn't take a cancer diagnosis to do that. We've never lived in a time where we have more access to sex education. So, you know, there are wonderful sex educators and some of them work in boutiques that sell sex toys and lubricants, and they are phenomenally educated to teach patients and their partners. So being open to, maybe you're not open to talking to your doctor, but maybe you have the courage to walk into a boutique that caters to somebody needing this kind of knowledge, cancer or no cancer. Sure. And we're also able to avail ourselves of wonderful ways of educating ourselves through podcasts. There are a couple of podcasts that, well, there are many podcasts that deal in the area of sex and love and relationships. So two that come to mind are, there's a podcast called Sex with Emily, and she's incredibly popular and she's incredibly educated and perhaps on a drive just popping on a podcast, wouldn't recommend it if you have young children in the car, (laughs) but setting the scene, setting the tone, opening up a conversation about, and one thing that Emily does very well is talking about just that, non-penetrative sex. And so there are ways to start this conversation and there are people who can help you to do that. Excellent. All right, so let's go back to loss of libido. What, uh, that, and to me, that seems really tough because, you know, as you've said, the brain is a, is a sexual organ. And if the brain is like, oh, I don't want to, there's nothing going on. Um, how, how do you overcome that? That seems really hard to me. It is very hard. And it is, it, it can take a lot of work. And it also is emotionally fraught because mm-hmm. If one partner has a loss of libido, and this is not specific to breast cancer, it can happen with aging, it can happen with other types of cancers in both men and women. It can happen with menopause, um, whether it's surgical menopause, chemo-induced menopause, or just plain old menopause. Um, Loss of libido can also be caused by massive amounts of stress, Mm -hmm. and cancer is inherently 
stressful and all that comes with it. So really trying to pinpoint where is this coming from, being radically honest. And again, this is something that sometimes is best understood in an individual counseling context, discussing where it might be coming from, whether it is something that we would consider more organic, like a side effect of a medication or something that may be more induced by stress and emotional things. And so, and then building back up. So first finding out, are there things that are possible that can increase libido? And some of those kind of things can be medications. Some of it can be testing out, and that may be through masturbation or through things that maybe hadn't really occurred in the context of a long-term partnership to really explore why, why what. Because a lot of people who complain of loss of libido are actually thinking about the trauma of having perhaps painful intercourse. Mm. And one fuels the next. So really being able to identify what is, what is causing this, that really can lead to a better treatment if there is one. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. So I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm going to group a couple here as well, because I feel like they go to get there as well. Um, fatigue. And then also you've mentioned a couple of times, anxiety, depression, the inability to relax. So all those I I'm kind of putting under your, you're tired, you're stressed. Sex seems like the last thing you want to do. So how do you, like, how do you explain that to your partner that, you know, this, I've got all this stuff going on or how do you, and, and once you've talked about it with your partner, like I, I how do you overcome that? I mean, it seems like those are things that are just inherent to any cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. The cancer diagnosis and in the survivorship. Mm-hmm. Also very common pre-cancer. Just because a cancer diagnosis may heighten this, but in the context of our busy lives, these things may have been present before. So again, it's really important to sort of parse out what it is that is preventing the interest. Um, And if it is something like fatigue, we often talk about having to change things up and to modify what our sexual schedule is. Most people have a time of the day that they do feel most energetic. So fatigue and fatigue is a major side effect and fatigue does not stop the day the treatment ends. So oftentimes it's about adjusting expectations first, which is that perhaps a patient has gone through extensive radiation, that on the last day of radiation, oftentimes everyone expects them to pop up because radiation is over. But the fatigue, cancer-related fatigue, radiation-related fatigue, post-surgical fatigue, coupled with all of the stressors that life, general life stressors can make someone actually extraordinarily tired. Mm -hmm. So modifying, if you were a couple who always had sex late at night after the kids were asleep or it was your bedtime ritual, but now one of you is going to bed 
very early and one late, that's a problem, but it's a fixable problem. And I've treated many couples who were nighttime people who became morning people, who became, oh, the kids are out of the house and uh, one partner is going to come home for lunch, people. <laughs> no, it's really listening to your body. It's also knowing that fatigue, cancer-related fatigue, is something that can be treated if needed. So again, mentioning, not knowing that this is part of the deal, but also pointing it out to your team and really emphasizing how it's impairing your quality of life because there are treatments for fatigue, such as use of stimulant medication under supervision. Mm -hmm. Those things can be used and should be used when appropriate, which can help. Anxiety, depression, If let's face it, if we're not in a good head space, it's very hard to want to do anything, mm -hmm. frankly. And so there are also treatments, psychotherapy, medication, the combination of both, support groups, getting support, actually acknowledging that this is a major symptom and it is can be expected in a good portion of patients and their partners. We forget. It may not be the patient who's right. anxious and depressed and fatigued. You may have a partner who is feeling the weight of that, who is feeling scared and frightened and anxious about their spouse's condition or has been picking up the workload before mm -hmm. while this patient has been going through treatment. So it does work both ways. Mm -hmm. So treating fatigue, recognizing fatigue, recognizing the emotional impact, and then setting aside time to be close because that is one of the things that actually can help mood. We know this, that connection, that bonding, that engaging in pleasurable activities, whether they are in the bedroom or out of the bedroom, are some of the biggest mood boosters that we have. The hard thing about a medical diagnosis is that you are not only dealing with physical symptoms, but oftentimes you are unable to participate in the very things that give you pleasure. Mm -hmm. So reinstating some of those things slowly is really important to healing. Okay. Now, what about loss of sensation in the breast? I've talked to several, a number of women, more than several, and I think Part of it was that it was unexpected for them. Their their surgeon or their oncologist, nobody really talked to them and explained that this could happen or was likely to happen. And if that was something that gave them a lot of pleasure during sex, it, it was all like, whoa, I, how do I deal with this? So, you know, obviously that, you know, you can talk to your partner about it, um, but is there, are there tips or, or things that can help? It really first is acknowledging and grieving to a certain extent, not staying there, but that this is no longer an erogenous zone for you. And it was, and it could have been very important, uh, you know, in terms of sensation and in terms of a major source of your pleasure. 
And so it's really acknowledging that and in then developing a workaround and changing the routine and figuring out what does work. While you can always acknowledge, wow, I have lost a sex organ. I have lost a major source of pleasure. And that can be devastating. We're very focused as a society um, on how great reconstructed breasts can look. Right. Woman's shoes is reconstruction. We're not focused. There may be a cursory mention of, well, you won't be able to breastfeed. Right. But oftentimes nobody talks about what that feels like. Mm -hmm. um, not only to lose one of the most sensitive areas for a lot of women, um, and it may be part of the sexual script that has developed with a couple, but also the feeling of loss of sensation in general is terribly uncomfortable. That, you know, feeling um, numbness, a lot of women complain of just general numbness anywhere in your body. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be in your breast, but anyone who has a numb lip, it's uncomfortable enough. So it is, you know, acknowledging and then working around and figuring out what does still work and maybe even discovering something that you didn't even know could work that's different for you. And that's where the education really comes into play is really ex what I would call expanding your repertoire. And that is easier to do now than it ever was, you know, whether you're visiting a store or that's dedicated with sex educators who can help you to, to buy products and things that might help to compensate or to give you new areas of pleasure or new ideas. But we also can purchase lots of things and get educated by using the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so for people who are less comfortable publicly going out and buying mm -hmm. things, they can order from the comfort of their own home. <laughs> and that is really helpful. But, you know, I've been pretty wonderfully surprised that it, at least where I live in the Chicago area, um, they sell sex toys at Target. Oh, really? What? Yes. Um, oftentimes they are locked up, which can be prohibitive <laughs> right. well, because they're embarrassed. Right. This to me as a a sex educator is an, is amazing. It's no longer shameful and it no longer has to be something that you order that's that is something that you, you know, should be worried about anyone seeing. And it makes me happy to walk into Target and see a huge selection of lubricants and vibrators right on the shelf. It's great. It's taken something that used to be hidden and shameful and brought it right into the mainstream. That's great. So gives me a lot of comfort. Now, what about if somebody has a partner who is afraid to touch them? It would be hard not to take that as a rejection. Of course. Really, the key here is communication. And so it is the person, you know, who may be the patient may have to ask, I'm wondering, be curious. Instead of being punitive, be curious. I'm curious. Are you scared to touch me? Are you scared you're going to hurt me? Are you, in some way, is this, is it hard for you to see my scars? And 
not everyone is okay seeing scars and that shouldn't make them bad. It makes them human. Um, so, you know, really being able to ask and wondering in a curious way, not in a punitive way, can really help to start that conversation. And you may find out things that you never knew. I mean, this is really common among pregnant women where you know, they, the woman might be very in tune with what's safe and what's not safe because they're the one carrying the pregnancy. Um, but oftentimes partners are absolutely terrified. What the, what's this going to do to, the, to my wife? What's this going to do to the baby? So it really has to do with asking the question. I'm wondering what's going on. And it may be that they're frightened of hurting the person. It may be that they don't feel connected. It may be something that they're less conscious of. Like, you know, I see you as fragile individual in general. I don't want to ask you for anything else. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, trying to communicate. And again, as we spoke about in the beginning of our discussion, perhaps that's the time where you can also provide them with some literature or some links or some information to disarm them in that way. It can be very disarming. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask if you treated any couples that way where the partner was like, oh, you know, I'm very scared. I'm very scared to touch and, and how how that can be overcome from the partner's viewpoint. It's like, oh, I'm really terrified. I'm going to hurt you or you're fragile. Or I, as you said, I feel guilty about asking you even for sex because you're going through so much. And even if, I guess I'm wondering, even if the person who has been diagnosed and treated says, oh no, it's fine. I'm fine. If What if the person just, the partner can't get over that? Are there tips for that? <laughs> it's a process. Okay. This is not one conversation, and it was it, it isn't one invitation to join me in the bedroom. This is a series of conversations, and what we spoke about earlier, which is the buildup, <laughs> is sometimes really just starting with handholding, snuggling, touching, scalp massage, not things that could be interpreted as anything more than that and being okay with that and asking for that. I, you know, I, I wondering, you know, oftentimes if someone's re recovering from surgery, they are completely sleeping on the other end of the bed. They may be sleeping in a recliner chair for months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're sleeping on the other end of the bed with the pillow fortress, you know, just to get themselves comfortable. That's not inviting in terms of intimacy and touch mm -hmm. it separates you know what maybe used to be the place so even getting changing the environment getting out of town going to a hotel for a night without mm -hmm. the expectation that we are going to hotel to restore our sex life right really changing it up and working up to those things but with the acknowledgement that things have changed mm -hmm. and the denial of that <clears throat> is really more dangerous than anything and people don't feel safe 
oftentimes acknowledging that, yes, things have changed. My body has changed. Your body has changed. Our levels of energy, our levels of being able to perform may have changed. It may be temporarily. It may be permanent. There's been losses, but really an acknowledgement of that. And I, I really do recommend that, you know, we're, we can be very focused on fixing a couple problem in couples therapy, but oftentimes couples therapy is so much more effective when both individuals have worked individually Mm. and really been able to express because in the context of couples therapy, people are often very fearful of speaking their mind, even with a therapist present. They're scared of hurting the other person. They're scared of saying something that will be forever devastating. Mm -hmm. So being able to socialize those things and be radically honest in the context of individual therapy can really make couples therapy that much better. Okay. Well, from my viewpoint, those were those were the biggest issues I wanted to cover, if that's if that's okay with you. From what you've said, it sounds like the two key things for this conversation when when you're gonna talk to your partner is honesty and education. Sounds like those are and rebuilding the bond, as you said, but 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 going into it being very honest with yourself and with your partner and also educating yourself about what's going on with you, what's going on with your partner, and then be being willing to try new things. Absolutely. And doing the work individually to really know where you stand, not just you as a partner. I always say if you were learning to play tennis, you would probably learn to how to hit the racket with the racket, how to hit the ball, what the right stance is, what you needed to work on to get the ball over the net. And then you would go and play with your partner. When one partner is a tennis player and the other isn't, when one is an expert and one is a novice and they go out to play together, it often goes very poorly. Mm -hmm. Somebody ends up frustrated. Somebody ends up feeling inadequate. So really doing the work yourself to get in touch with what it what is what are the barriers preventing me from talking about it what are the barriers preventing me from wanting to engage what might work for me being able to know for you what actually might feel good and then being able to tell your partner that doing the work individually so then you can both come to the tennis court together <laughs> i like it uh, I like that analogy. That's good. Now, I have a question about timing. Is there a best time to bring this up? I am assuming just because this is the kind of person I am, because I don't like to wait till things are very bad. Like I would think earlier is better, but I don't know if that's true. Like, is there a best time or does it really depend on the person and the relationship and all that? I think early and often is really you know, putting everything on the table, there is so much involved in a cancer diagnosis, so much disruption to the family system, to life in general. And the partner relationship often takes a backseat to all of that. So really putting it right up there on the agenda um, and couples will resist this. 
you know, if you ask the majority of people who have children who've come into my office, the only thing and the most important thing to them besides maybe getting ample medical ample medical care is what about the kids? Mm. Very infrequently and mostly in the context of much older and mature relationships where the kids are long gone. It's what about my spouse? What about our sex life? This seems to take a very huge backseat. How is this going to affect our relationship? Not many people are talking about that. And so putting the relationship right up there with kids, money, logistics, household is really important. And so it's a series of conversations, but putting it right out there, here are some of the side effects that they have said to me in my, you know, oncology education. And oftentimes have your partner present for the appointments so that you can ask the doctor, the nurse, you can ask right there in front of your partner so that you don't have to start this conversation. So most patients are a little bit educated before they go to a reconstructive surgeon, mm -hmm. before they start chemotherapy. They have some knowledge, you know, possibly secondhand of what might be the issues. Mm -hmm. But even asking the question, is it safe to have sex? There are many, many people who think it is terribly unsafe to have sex. So even if the desire is there, and both ends, it's a safety issue. And th that might be the concern that no one's expressed. So being able to talk about it, just like we're able to talk about, can I drive? Right. Is it right. safe to drive? Can I work? Mm -hmm. Is this okay? So having um, the opportunity to have the conversation with the medical professional. That makes sense. That makes sense. It, it's almost like you're having a conversation. What are the side effects? What are the sexual side effects? How is this going to affect my sex life? It just becomes the standard question when you're meeting with your oncologist. Yeah. That's a, that's a great idea. And, you know, ideally it should be put right out there. Right. Um, right. You know, the oncologist to the patient. That often doesn't happen for time reasons and other reasons. Sure. Okay. Now, my one last question. You're a clinical psychologist and you specialize in helping people with cancer and you're in Chicago. If somebody is in an area and they don't have access to somebody like you, are there other professionals that can help with this sex and intimacy issues, like a sex therapist, just a general counselor? Are there, which which kind of professionals would you recommend? My bias is always toward the professionals who have some experience with cancer. Okay. So um, a sex therapist can be incredibly helpful. A sex therapist who has some knowledge of what the sexual side effects of breast cancer and the treatments involved for breast cancer is going to be extraordinarily helpful. So asking through your cancer center, through the local resources for cancer patients through the American Psychosocial Oncology Society's website to identify mental health providers with some experience in cancer. 
um, I find that to be overarchingly helpful. And a lot of the psychosocial oncology professionals within a cancer center or who are referred, the cancer center may refer to these individuals in the community or to even educational groups in the community are well-versed in the language of breast cancer and all that it brings. But there are um, also organizations, and I will provide you with some links. Um, there's the American Academy of Marriage and Family Therapists. There is the AASECT.org. I mean, okay. there are many resources um, out there. And also know that telehealth is the greatest thing that has ever happened to our field. So previously, when people could not reach experts, mm -hmm. um, they now can't. And that has opened up a whole new world for getting just some expert consultation and advice, um, regardless of location. And some people actually prefer that, especially when talking about intimacy. Sure. People having a screen between <laughs> between us is most helpful. So um, there are a lot of resources out there. It's really the recognition that this is super important and it shouldn't be at the bottom of the list. Mm -hmm. After all of the different therapists that people engage to get back to wellness, whether it's physical therapy or a personal trainer or lymphedema therapy or radiation therapy, but also putting the relationship right out there. Mm -hmm. Feeling that is also critical. That's, that's great. Dr. Ross, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. And I am so grateful that you shared all this knowledge with us. And I will tell everybody, we will post the links that Dr. Ross is going to send. We'll post them along on the page with the podcast. So thank you very much. So appreciate your insights. Very happy to help. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.